0: I personally was powerfully impacted by the men's retreat last year. I just want to remind you men that April 1st and 2nd, simply a Friday night and a Saturday morning, we're having a men's retreat with Brian Murphy, uh, who has spoken at our youth camps in the past and is a powerful speaker with a real heart for God. So take advantage of this time. Come, bring a friend, be impacted by the Lord on this significant weekend, April 1st and 2nd. You can sign up in the lobby. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 13, and this passage is a continuation of what we covered last week. It really begins back in chapter 3 and verse 7. And as we said then, it is a warning to people in this Jewish background church People who had moved toward Jesus, but had never come to Jesus. They had heard the gospel. They had even given intellectual assent to the gospel. They even professed to be Christians, but they had never entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ. They had never received Him. They were on the knife edge of decision And in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, he gives an illustration. It's from Psalm 95. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't be like Israel. Israel heard God's voice, they hardened their hearts, and they died in the wilderness, never making it to the promised land. And having given that illustration in verses 7 to 11, he then gives the application in the verses that follow. And he says, if you hear God's voice, don't say no. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Learn from the error of Israel and respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And it's summed up in verse 19 of chapter 3. They could not enter God's rest because of Unbelief. Israel had a promise of entering God's rest, and they could have realized it. They could have entered that rest, but the one essential ingredient that they lacked was faith. They left Egypt in their rearview mirror, but that generation never came to Canaan because they were halted by unbelief. And in the same way, these Jews to whom he is writing had left Judaism in their rearview mirror. But they had never come all the way to Christ. They had never entered God's rest for the same reason unbelief. And maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel, you know the gospel, you like the gospel. And you've even given up some things, but you have never come all the way to Christ. You have never committed your life to Him. You have never crossed the Jordan and received Jesus Christ by faith. Well, this message is for you. Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering His rest... Any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Now this verse tells us there remains a promise to us of entering God's rest. Now the question is, what is that rest? Well, to Israel, that rest was the promised land and the relationship that they would have with God in that context. The generation in Moses' day missed it because of unbelief. And in Joshua's day, when they finally did go into the land, they didn't really experience that rest because they disobeyed God by not taking the land. So they never experienced that rest. In fact, God later took them out of the land into captivity in Babylon. And so Canaan to us today is a picture of God's rest. It's still available to us, only to us, it is salvation rest. It is spiritual rest. Now, I want to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about this word that he chooses to use. It's the word rest. Now, what does rest mean? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it has several different dimensions to it. The primary definition is to cease from action. When we rest in a spiritual sense, we cease from action. You know, when I ask people, how do you know or what are you depending on for your spiritual destiny? People almost always begin with the phrase, I'm trying. I'm trying to do the best that I can. Well, God wants us to rest. And rest means no more self-effort, no more trying to please God by fleshly exertion, no more trying to work for salvation, no more legalism. We rest in free grace. The second aspect of the definition is to be free from worries. And that's a great thing to rest in too, isn't it? As a believer... We have relaxation. We are quiet, we are still, we are peaceful. We are free from guilt because our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God. No more anxiety about sin and, 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 and sin and guilt. I knew that word was in there. We can be free from worries. And then the third aspect of that is to settle down, to lie down. Positionally, we are established in Jesus Christ. As a believer, I no longer have to float around from philosophy to philosophy. I no longer have to be searching anymore. I am settled in Jesus Christ. I am resting And then a fourth aspect is to remain confident. And that's certainly what we have as believers. We have security, absolute trust, absolute confidence in God's care for us. And then a fifth aspect is to lean on something. And I like that. You know, people sometimes tell me, well, you know, Christianity is just a crutch. You know what I say? No, it's not. It's a wheelchair. I put all my confidence, all my trust, I lean completely on Jesus Christ for his provision for me today and his provision for me for eternity. So by faith in Jesus Christ, I enter into a new relationship with God in which I lean on Him with total confidence. I am settled in Christ. I am free from worries. And I have ceased from action when it comes to trying to save myself. And so when God offers rest in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, it's this new relationship with God that He's talking about. And we had to have dimensions added to that when we look at Scripture because rest is also talking about a future aspect and that future aspect is the kingdom aspect, kingdom rest in the millennium and eternal rest in heaven. So rest is the fullest relationship with God now and in the kingdom and forever. Forever. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look in this passage which emphasizes four aspects of rest. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is the basis of rest in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1 again. It says, Therefore, that's looking back. Because Israel forfeited God's rest by unbelief, And because that rest is still available to you today, you had better fear lest you come up short. Fear lest you miss it by faith. You see, as a Christian, one of the things that I experience through faith in Jesus Christ is that I don't have fear. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be troubled fearful. Second Timothy 1.7 says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. The only fear that I am to have as a Christian is that reverential fear, that reverential awe of God. But here he speaks to you if you were on the knife edge of decision and he says, fear. Be afraid that you might miss God's rest. This offer was made to Israel. They came up short because of unbelief. And if you find yourself in unbelief today, you need to be fearful. It's not a trifling thing. To dilly dally around with God's salvation. It's not a trifling thing to fool around with God's promise of rest. It's something that you had better pay fearful attention to. Now, as a Christian, part of the rest that I enjoy is peace. I have a total lack of fear about myself. But this passage tells me that I ought to be fearful about you if you're on the knife edge of decision and have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look back at chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. All of you take care lest any one of you have that evil, unbelieving heart. And then look at verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened. All of you encourage, lest any one of you be hardened. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, notice what it says. Therefore let us, that's all of us, Fear lest any one of us should come up short. You see, we all should have the fear for one in our midst who may come up short of God's rest by unbelief. Many times when I'm talking to a person about their relationship with Jesus Christ and I realize that they're an unbeliever, and I realize that they are on that knife edge of decision, my heart starts beating faster. And I get a little bit nervous. And I get a little bit anxious because I realize that the decision that they are about to make is the decision between eternal life and eternal judgment. Two weekends ago, we think that my dad had a minor stroke. And he, in fact, I went home after preaching or went over to his house after preaching. He didn't know who I was. Throughout the week, he got better and better. And by Friday, uh, Dorothy McBride had passed away. And so I went to ask dad about Dorothy McBride. And I said, Can you tell me something about Dorothy McBride? And he started talking and he didn't quit for about 30 minutes. He knew the day of the week that she was saved. He knew the day of the week that her husband got saved. And I had to laugh out loud because I'd said, Dad, how do you remember the day of the week that somebody got saved so many years ago? But you know, I thought about it, and in a sports analogy, people always say when they're in the Super Bowl that they remember every detail of that game. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, to my dad, that's the Super Bowl. Leading someone to Jesus Christ is the Super Bowl. And so he remembers every single event that took place when someone surrenders their heart to Jesus Christ. Because there's a fear that we ought to have for one another that if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that's serious, serious business. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is do we really fear for those in our midst who have never come all the way to Jesus Christ. And that fear shows itself in care. So let me ask each of you a question. Don't look around. This is a personal question. Do you care enough to speak to those around you that you're not sure about? Do you care enough driven by fear for their eternal destiny to confront those around you that you're not sure about. We had two calls at our house on Tuesday night telling us that there was an armed fugitive running loose in our neighborhood. You didn't hear about this? I'll tell you later. Why would somebody call us up and say, we want to warn you that there's a guy running from the police and he's armed in your neighborhood because they feared for us. You see, they would already locked their house. They were settled. They were safe. But they wanted to make sure we were safe because they feared for us. My question is, do we fear for others? Do we really care about others? You know, it's sad to say that as Christians we are more afraid sometimes of what people think than we are afraid that they might miss God's eternal rest. This verse says, we should fear lest they come short of it. Now how do you come short of God's rest? Only one way. You come short by unbelief. The only way that you come short of God's rest is by neglecting to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Well, Dan, I, I come short of God's rest because I'm too great of a sinner for God to forgive me. No. You can't come short of God's grace by being too great of a sinner. If you are too great of a sinner, you're in a perfect position to enter God's grace. Jesus said in Mark 9, 17, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in 1st Timothy 1.15, Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. If you realize that you're a great sinner, then you're one step closer to faith in Christ than most people who are self-righteous enough to think that they don't need salvation. You see, you cannot out-sin the grace of God Romans 5 20 says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more and James 4 6 says but he gives more grace how much more than you need you see you ask yourself how much grace do I need God gives more because that's the kind of God he is So you need to come if you are a sinner like I did to Jesus Christ and say, I don't know how you could forgive someone who has done this much to you. But I'm going to believe that you can because you say you do. That's the only way we can come to Jesus Christ. And when we do, we enter His rest. Mel Trotter was about as depraved an individual as I can imagine. His children were starving because he was an alcoholic. And he was taking all the money for the household and he was spending it on alcohol. In fact, his children were in so desperate a shape that his four-year-old daughter actually died of malnutrition because he wasn't providing for his family. So her mother took the little child and with money donated by the neighbors, she bought a little dress and a pair of shoes to put on her daughter so she would look pretty in the casket. And she was laying in the casket overnight in the mortuary and Mel Trotter broke into the mortuary, took the clothes off his dead baby and took them down and exchanged them for a drink. That's how low this man had gone. In fact, he was so low that he couldn't stand himself. And so in Chicago, he was headed down to Lake Michigan to commit suicide by drowning himself in the lake. And someone invited him into Pacific Someone invited him into Pacific Garden Mission, where our young people were a couple weeks ago. He came in, got saved, became a preacher, and helped found 65 rescue missions throughout the United States. You are never too sinful for God to forgive you. He has plenty of grace. And then look at verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. We have had good news preached to us just as they had good news preached to them, but it didn't profit them. Why? No faith. You see, it doesn't do a bit of good to hear if you don't believe. I think a lot of people think that they, they can sit in church and listen and get everything that they need just by osmosis. Let me tell you something. Hearing the gospel, knowing the gospel, being able to recite the gospel does not mean anything. Unless you believe. Israel knew all about God's promise of rest. They had heard all along that that's what God was providing for them. They left Egypt to go to the promised land. But when they got to the promised land, what did they do? They sent the spies in. The spies came back and said, There are giants in the land. And in Numbers 13, they said, We're grasshoppers. That's the grasshopper complex. God says, go in and take the land. And they said, well, we'd like to, but we're intimidated. And as a result of that lack of faith, they died in the wilderness. Now, maybe there's somebody here this morning and you've been coming here for a long time. You've heard the gospel. You know the gospel. But you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You have never mixed it with faith. This verse tells me it profits you nothing. The tragedy is that hell will be full of people who went to church and owned the Bible and took their kids to Sunday school. Matthew 7:22 Jesus says many will say to me on that day lord lord and i will say i never knew you how many many and then later in that same chapter in verse 26 and 27 Jesus tells about the foolish man who built his house on the sand remember that story The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. You know what the application is? You know who the foolish man is? Jesus says it is everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. Having the gospel preached to you is not enough. There must be faith. Nodding at the preacher when he talks to you is not enough. There must be faith. Feeling convicted inside is not enough. There must be faith. And this was especially significant to these Jews because Jews typically had the idea, according to Paul in Romans chapter 2, that having the law was enough. They didn't have to keep it. Paul says, you boast in having the law even while you're breaking the law. And then in that same chapter, he says, they boasted in circumcision, even though it was something that was simply external and not internal. And so their their attitude was, all we need is the law and ritual. That's kind of like being stopped by Hazelwood or Adams on the interstate after you've been going 90 miles an hour and they they walk up to your car and you roll down the window and you say officer everything's okay I, I have a copy of the Missouri Code of Highway rules and regulations in my glove box and in fact I have a book here called Driving for Dummies and I'm almost finished reading it you can't punish me. I know the law. Well, you see, having the gospel and knowing the gospel and doing little peripheral things like ceremonies and rituals doesn't mean a thing if there's no faith. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, When you receive from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When you hear the Word of God, you are to receive it as the Word of God, and it does its work in you when you believe. Faith in Jesus Christ is what God is looking for. And then, if you look at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a quote from Psalm 95. That's going back to the illustration he already quoted in chapter 3 and verse 11. Israel did not enter God's rest. Why not? Unbelief. Who does enter God's rest? We who have believed. The basis of rest is faith. And then the second point is the availability of rest. It's really introduced at the end of verse 3 because he says, They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. The reason Israel didn't enter God's rest was not because it wasn't available. He says, it's been available since the foundation of the world. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, and he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. We're told that God worked for six days. God created everything in six days, and then he rested And Adam enjoyed a relationship of rest with God in the garden until he sinned. And what happened when he sinned? He started sowing fig leaves and hiding behind trees. Adam went from a a relationship of rest to becoming restless. And ever since then, God has been trying to get people to come back into his rest. In fact, because we are out of his rest, you know what? God started working again. And the whole work of redemption is about bringing us back into God's rest. That's why Jesus said in John 5 17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. You know what that tells me? God couldn't rest until He had provided a way for us to come back into His rest. And then verse 5 goes on, and again in this passage, they shall not enter My rest. The children of Israel didn't enter it. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Now stop right there. His point is, since God established it, it remains. You see, what he's saying is, God didn't throw it away when Adam sinned. God didn't throw it away when Israel showed unbelief. Uh, That that would mean that, that God created something that had no purpose. See, that would be saying God created it Man blew it, so God threw it away. No. God doesn't operate that way. God isn't like you and me. He doesn't make something that doesn't matter. He established rest for man to enter, and people will enjoy fellowship with Him. Now, this good news of rest was offered to Israel, and they rejected because of unbelief. What he's saying is it remains available. And then if you look at verse 7, he continues. They failed to enter because of disbelief. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he had been had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Israel in Moses' day didn't enter. So God, through David, five centuries later, in Psalm 95, when Israel was already in the land, says, today. You see, what he's saying is, the the offer was made in Moses' day, and now five centuries later, through David, he makes the same offer again. The rest is still available in David's day. You say, well, wait a minute. I I thought Joshua took them into the land. Well, that's verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. If Joshua had provided rest for Israel, then David wouldn't be promising it in Psalm 95, five centuries later. What's the conclusion? Verse 9, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. True rest didn't come through Moses, and it didn't come through Joshua, and it didn't come through David. It comes through Jesus Christ. And on March 20th, 2005, I can stand here and offer you God's rest. It's still available. And then, thirdly, we see the nature of rest in verse 10. He says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, we already said that there's a present aspect to this rest as well as a future fulfillment. And that present aspect is confirmed in this verse because it says, The one who has entered his rest. That's past tense. In fact, if you look back at verse 3, it reads this way. We who have believed enter that rest. Present tense. It's a present reality. Now, I know a lot of Christians or professing Christians who seem to be resting. Now, I look around, and I see some people, they look dead to me, but they're, they're definitely rest. they're not doing anything. That's not what he means by this word. You can't tell a person's resting because they never move in the spiritual sense. This is God's rest. In its fullest sense, we're going to realize it in the future, in the kingdom, and in eternity. But there is a present aspect to that now. And it doesn't mean that I do nothing. My life as a Christian should be characterized by good works. In fact, Titus 2.14 says we are to be a people zealous for good deeds. But the sense in which I enter God's rest now is that I know that my eternal destiny is settled. And I am confidently leaning on God. And I am free from anxieties and worries about sin and guilt. And I am free from trying to work for salvation. And I am resting in free grace. This is what Jesus meant when He said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my load is light there is a present aspect to this rest that we experience but there's also a future aspect to it and let me show you just a verse look at revelation chapter 14 and verse 11 revelation 14 verse 11 turn me off for a second would you thank you revelation 14:11 and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night that's a description of hell and this verse tells me that hell has no rest and then if you move a couple verses to verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. You know what that tells me? Our ultimate rest happens when we exit this world. I'm experiencing rest now in that God has provided everything I need, but that rest ought to demonstrate itself in good works. And one day I'm going to rest completely when I exit this world into the presence of the Lord. That's the nature of rest. And then one final point, the urgency of rest in verses 11 to 13. Notice verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest... Lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now that sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? Be diligent to enter that rest. Work to rest. Is that what he's saying? Say, well, you can't work to rest, you have to stop working to rest. Well, this word diligent or be diligent has two aspects. One is to make it a priority. You see, diligence is the opposite of what he said in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he talked about those who are drifting by salvation. How do you drift by salvation? You just do nothing about it. You're just indifferent. You don't really listen. And pretty soon, you're gone into a lost eternity. And so here he says, be Diligent. Make it a priority. Don't take it lightly. If you are on the knife edge of decision, take hold of Jesus Christ by faith. And then there's a second aspect of this phrase, be diligent, and that is to make haste. Do it now. Do it today. And that's why throughout this passage we read, today, today, today. You remember what Israel did on the day after they didn't go into the promised land? They didn't go into the promised land, and Moses came to them and said, You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They woke up the next morning and said, We're ready to go. We're going to go into the promised land. Moses said, You can't go in, you're too late. They went in and they were routed by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. You know why? They were a day late. The message is today. It's urgent. And then look at verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now we're going to go into that verse in some detail next time, but I just want to touch on it because it applies to our passage And what I think he's saying is you can't play games with God because the Word of God will cut right through your hypocrisy and your sham. You have two choices when it comes to the Word of God. You can allow it to reveal to you who you are and to pierce your heart bringing salvation or you can wait and let God's Word pierce you in judgment. If you harden your heart to God's Word of salvation, you will one day face God's Word of judgment. And that's why in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, when we read about Jesus coming out of heaven on a white horse, it says, Out of His mouth comes a sword, and with it He smites the nation. You can let the sword cut your heart today, bringing you... To repentance and salvation or you can harden your heart and face that same sword of God's word in judgment and then verse 13 adds and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do if you're like Adam and you're hiding behind trees this is a good verse for you because if you're a professor of of faith in Jesus Christ, and not a possessor, you may fool me, but I'm not the one with whom you have to do. God sees right through all your facades. He sees right through your masks. He sees through all your barriers. You stand naked before Him. You are transparent in His sight. And so, the question I want to close with today is Is your profession of faith real? God already knows. You need to ask yourself Is my profession real? Have you entered his rest? Have you quit trying to save yourself? Are you resting or are you still restless? Are you leaning completely? Jesus Christ. If not, be diligent to enter His rest. Make it the priority of your life and do it today. I'm going to have the praise team come back and we're going to sing in closing that praise song, You Are My King. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing and I'm going to ask you to think about these words and, and whether they could be the prayer of your heart honestly before God. You are my King. And if you can't say that today, then I invite you to come by simple childlike faith to trust your life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be down at the front this morning if you would like to pray with someone, if you have questions. You come as we sing together. There are others here who want to join this fellowship. You can come while we're singing as well. Let's... Make this our prayer to the King of Kings. I'm going to ask you to be seated for just a moment so you can see up front here. And There you go. Julie, if you would just turn around. This is Julie Taylor. Uh, if you haven't met Julie, Julie's a sweetheart and uh, has a neat testimony of how God has been working in her life. And she's come this morning to join our fellowship. And so I'm going to ask Jerry, if you would, to just lead her out to the lobby. And after we close in prayer, I'll give you the opportunity to encourage her in her decision to join our church family. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed by your love. to think that You would go to work so we could rest. That Jesus, You would go to the cross in our place and on that cross say, it is finished. Meaning everything that is necessary to pay for our salvation is done. And Lord, for those of us who have entered that rest by simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. But Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to be fearful for those around us who have never come to that full entrustment of their lives to Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are those here today who are in that condition, I pray that you would draw them by Your loving grace and by Your Spirit to salvation in Jesus Christ and the privilege that is so available because of Him. We rejoice in it and we thank You for it and we give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.